0: Acme Services contractor submits a bid using Sally, Bill, and Jesse as the lead talent. Sally leaves for another company after the bids are in. Does that mean the bid is no longer valid? Well, not necessarily. We get more about a recent protest on these lines from Smith-Pactor-McWhorter procurement attorney Joe Petrillo. And Joe, this case shows that even if you do switcheroo on people, it doesn't necessarily knock you out of the competition, does it?
1: Well, it depends on where the protest is filed, among other things, and what you knew and when you knew it. So let's get into the weeds here. We've got some new guidance now coming out of the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. In the case of Golden IT LLC versus United States, It's a bid protest that arose from um, acquisition by the Census Bureau, and they have something called the Master Address File, and they needed IT services to maintain this large database of information which it gets from tribal, state, and local governments. Census conducted the acquisition under GSA's multiple award schedule and did a set-aside for either women-owned small businesses or service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses. After the quotations were evaluated, Census awarded the order to Spatial Front, and one of the competitors, Golden IT, protested to the Court of Federal Claims. It advanced several issues, and one of them, I think, is of particular importance for other contexts and for other bidders. Golden IT alleged that Spatial Front had made a material misrepresentation in its proposal about key personnel. The person in question went to work for another concern shortly after proposals were submitted. So Golden said, look, either... Spatial Front knew when it submitted its proposal that it couldn't produce this person for contract performance, or it found out afterward and should have notified census. This case went to, as I mentioned, the Court of Federal Claims, and their judge, Solemnson, looked at these issues, and he acknowledged that at least since the 1992 appellate court decision, a misrepresentation in a proposal obviates a proper award. And if that misrepresentation, a material misrepresentation, I'm talking about something that makes some difference in the award decision, if that's made knowingly or recklessly, it would even disqualify the offeror from receiving an award or participating further in the procurement.
0: But there's a but there.
1: Well, in this instance, there was no evidence in the record that Spatial Front knew or had reason to know when it submitted its proposal that the key person would be unavailable for contract performance. Another but is that there's a second part of this argument, and I think this is the one that has more general applicability and raises some interesting issues going forward. Golden had also argued that even if Spatial Front didn't know about this when it submitted its proposal, after its proposal was submitted and under evaluation and this person left its employ, it should have notified Census Bureau that the person would be unavailable. And there, Golden IT was basing this argument on a long series of GAO bid protest decisions, some of which we've discussed over the years, which say that when an offeror knows a key personnel becomes unavailable after submitting its proposal, it has to notify the agency about this.
0: We're speaking with Joe Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith-Pactor-McWhorter. But that's GAO decisions, and this was taking place in court.
1: Right. And the Court of Federal Claims had never really addressed that issue, nor had the appellate court. So this is a case, as we say, of first impression. And what is the judge going to do? Well, the judge looked at the statute, the regulation, and the prior appellate decisions, and nothing in those decisions imposed this duty on an offeror. In addition, he noted that there had been some criticisms of the GAO rule, not only that it wasn't grounded in legal requirements, but because it was kind of unfair, because presumably an offeror has to notify the agency of something that's going to, in most cases, disqualify its proposal. But the agency isn't under any obligation to do anything to allow the substitution of a different person. In addition, here we have a situation where this particular fact, which is of interest and importance, has changed after proposals are due. And we're carving out a rule saying you've got to notify the agency and possibly disqualify your bid. But lots of things could happen after proposals are due, which might be of importance to the award decision. And we're singling out this one for the special treatment.
0: So the court found that there's sort of an arbitrariness to allowing the protest on that grounds then based on the lack of appellate decisions and prior lower court decisions.
1: The judge declined to follow the doctrine that GAO had built around this duty it created. And so now we have uh, at least one judge at the Court of Federal Claims, you know, saying, nope, that's not a requirement, GAO saying it is, and we'll have to see what happens. The way the court is structured, other judges at the Court of Federal Claims don't have to follow this decision, and there won't be getting a definitive resolution until the Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit takes up the case.
0: In a case like this, if the soliciting agency, in this case the Census Bureau, had said here are our selection criteria and number one, which would get, I don't know, I'm making this up, 60% of the weight of the evaluation is the talent that is being bid. Could that change the calculus in court? Hard to say.
1: Well, the misrepresentation or the change has to be one that's material and, and in your instance clearly would be. The question is, though, what are agencies going to do? Are they going to require in their solicitation that offerors notify them of changes in key personnel? If they do that, are they going to allow substitutions? If they do that, then they've got the prospect of having to redo a portion of the evaluation. And as we know, those processes of evaluating final proposals can go on for some time.
0: Yeah. So if the agency goes ahead and makes that award and then the first day of execution of the contract, well, where's Sally? Well, she left. (laughs) She went to a spatial front. But in that case, that didn't happen, didn't go to the winning bidder. Then the agency is kind of stuck with its decision.
1: Yeah, that is true. Agencies, if you look at it, they're in a difficult position. Either they want to carve out a class of information, such as key personnel, where they want to be notified of changes, and then have a way of evaluating them. And if that's the case, the evaluation process could go on toward almost the end and then have to be redone to some degree. Or they can say, look, we're gonna freeze it at this period of time. We have the possibility, of course, that changes will occur after contract award, And we've got contract clauses to take care of those things. But we're going to freeze the evaluation at one point of time, evaluate proposals, make an award decision, and then handle other issues as matters of contract administration. And that's the choice they have to make.
0: Yeah, so they have to make those choices before they get into source selection and make sure that everyone understands the ground rules before they get there.
1: Yeah, this probably should best be done as a matter of regulation, at least as a matter of laying down these rules in the solicitation.
0: Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith-Pactor-McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA.
3: try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I Talk to people. I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders, and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first thirty or so Black women that. have Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership, because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves.
2: I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington post-interview, um, uh, and it, it, you were amazing, and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there, and um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well, and you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy.
1: Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at Grifflesplasma.com.